There was a widely shared story by Mario Vitone on the Slate site this June about how in real life, drowning doesn't look like what TV and movies have trained us to expect. The flailing arms and splashing, the calls for help. It seems that when someone drowns here in the real world, there is something called the instinctive drowning response that kicks in, and it's the reason so many of those drowning scenes we've seen are rendered bogus. The term instinctive drowning response was coined by Dr. Francesco Pia, whom Vitone quotes at length. A drowning person can't call for help, we learn, because the respiratory system's priority is to breathe, not to speak. A drowning person can't wave for help, because instinct forces them to spread their arms out across the surface of the water and press down in an effort to keep the head where it can find oxygen. A drowning person can't just relax and, say, float on their back because instinct won't allow them to get horizontal. According to Dr. Pia, the body remains upright in the water with no evidence of a supporting kick. It's a good article, probably an important one, like those pamphlets that tell you the signs of a heart attack or a stroke are important. It goes into far more detail than I will relay here, but I recommend it, not least if you have kids. But reading it for the first time, I felt a distinct unease, and it took me a while to place why. Each summer, when I was a kid, my mom would take the train from Montreal to London, Ontario, to visit her family. Her mom and her sister both lived there, and my sister and I would go with her until my sister got a boyfriend and opted to stay home. Then it was just my mom and me riding the train all that way. I looked forward to it. There was at least possibility. I got to leave my little French town with its disappointing malls, record stores that carried few of the 60s LPs I wanted to get my hands on, and forget about finding many English-language books, and we headed to London. It doesn't get more English than that. The train ride alone held promise. Would there be anyone my age headed that way? Would they want company? Chances were more than good they'd speak English, and... Again, I must point out, this was pre-laptop, pre-iPod, even the cassette Walkman was pretty rare. I was willing to bet that five hours in a metal tube could even make the adolescent me look like a good diversion. Actually, the logistics were nearly always impossible. Odds weren't great you'd see the cute girl, but they were even slimmer that you could find a way to talk to her without the adults present. A few passes in the aisle, allegedly to go to the bathroom or the diner car, were all I could muster, and the miracle that she would look up and magically connect with me never did happen. But as I said, it was about the possibility. For my mom, it was much more. She took to the train like a prisoner released after doing a dime. She would chat with anyone, and I didn't appreciate how much it meant to her to be heading home. She felt trapped in Saint-Jean, in Quebec. Her French was never very good, and my dad had the car all day. 
She spent all of her time in our house, isolated. Six hours on a train largely filled with anglophones headed west sounded just fine to her. I remember being frustrated with her spending so much time chatting and smoking and drinking in the bar car in 1983, the last summer we went out. She was then the age I am now. I can't get my head around that. What could I now tell someone my age who is in the dire straits that woman was? I'm trying to think, but I don't know anyone in my life today who even comes close to that kind of unhappiness. And I don't mean I mind that. But how is it even possible? People still drink. Women still endure bad marriages. And their kids are still petulant and oblivious. But they don't seem to be crossing my orbit at the moment. Anyway, once in London, she could enjoy the companionship of her mother and her sister who got out of her own bad marriage in the late 70s and still had my older cousins, Mark and Al, at home. It was double-edged for my mom, a relief to go and be there, a recharging of the batteries, but also with that dread that she would have to go back. No wonder she drank. And for me, London meant spending time with the boys, at least as much as they would afford, because I was four and six years their junior, and generous as they were with their time and money, I wasn't about to get too much in the way of a good time. But where we rarely went to the movies in Saint-Jean, in London, I'd go two or three times a week, and I'd prowl the City Lights bookstore and the record shops and soak it all in. These are the things I remember loving about our trips to London. Only there was that one time. I was thirteen, or fourteen, I think. Al was no longer at home. Mark was working days picking strawberries on a farm outside of town. I don't know whose idea it was for me to go with him and pick strawberries all day, but it sure wasn't mine. I can imagine no one wanted me to come all the way to London just to be bored all day, and that's fair. It was kind of boring, being in a suburban house like my own, but in a different locale. The TV stations were different and largely English, but eventually that novelty wears off. Well, I didn't find the gumption to get out of it, and Mark and I were carted off to the strawberry farm early one morning. Dozens of teens were hired to do this work, and had been at it most of the summer. It felt like starting at a new school, and the subject was strawberries. I didn't care for them before that day, and I've given them the big snub ever since. Long story short, I was a disaster of a strawberry picker. It was dull and hot and dirty and uncomfortable, and I didn't much care about the strawberries one way or the other, but of course one needed to pick the biggest, fattest, juiciest ones for those little green plastic baskets they're sold in. And it turned out I was no judge of a primo strawberry. Plus, I was slow. Useless would be the word. And I knew it. By lunchtime, I was about set to unveil a fine performance of a young man suffering from an undisclosed ailment. I may even have believed it myself, but not likely. Mark mostly hung out with the older kids, like himself, and who could blame him? There was a good-sized watering hole on the land, and at lunch, everyone sat around it and ate their sandwich or chips from home. There was a rickety diving platform built at one end, and kids climbed up and threw themselves into the water to beat the heat. 
Some came prepared with bathing suits, some wore jean cutoffs, some stripped down to their underwear. I wore a regular pair of jeans and didn't want to strip. But also I wanted to feel like one of the gang, even for a moment, so I climbed the ladder and jumped as far into the middle of the black water as I could. I don't remember the water being especially refreshing. It may have been. More pressing was learning how denim reacts to water. It absorbs it, quickly, and immediately wants to give up the ghost and head straight for the bottom in surrender. Not a strong swimmer to begin with, this was an unwelcome discovery. I kicked hard, but my kicks did little to either move me forward or keep me afloat. And it all happened very fast. The cement pants were tiring me out, and the intervals between breathable moments where my mouth was clear of the waterline were getting longer and longer. I could see the others on the grassy banks not more than maybe twenty feet away, but they paid me no mind. I wondered if I should try to get out of the pants and lose the weight of them, but figured it might be too long and arduous a struggle and make things worse. Finally, the worst moment arrived. I might not yet have been drowning in the technical sense. I was meeting many of the criteria on Dr. Pia's list, but was still thinking pretty clearly, and I think I could have yelled for help. But then I realized, I just might be the sort of person who, when faced with a choice between calling attention to oneself in an embarrassing situation and dying, might just go with the latter. I know. I know. You would rather die than ask for help? Dude, that is messed up. That's right, Sigmund. It is messed up. Anyway, surprise ending. I didn't drown. I probably considered how embarrassing it would be to have my lifeless body dragged onto the banks in front of all those older, cooler kids and found one last reserve of strength to make it to shore. I crawled off to the shade of a tree away from the others and spent the rest of the afternoon there, drying off, uncomfortable, waiting for the ride back. Sometimes in these little stories your narrator learns something about himself, or his family, or how the world works. But I don't know what the big reveal is this week. I mean, you picture the kid riding the train back to Montreal, having told no one about how close he had come to inadvertently drowning himself, and now feeling a bit queasy with the notion that he just might not have it in himself to save himself when the time comes. And he looks across at the forty-six-year-old woman he feels he has so little in common with as she orders another white wine and looks out the window of a train surely taking her in the wrong direction. Oh, there it is. Pretty Much, Episode 30, In Common. Written and read by Scott Clarkson. Music by Garner Firebird.